linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And even though I planned on cutting back to a podcast every other week, I just couldn't stay away from you for that long. You know, uh, I got to thinking about that wonderful grant we received last week from the Magic Mutt Foundation. And then in the past couple of days, we've also received very generous donations from Courtney M. and Carrie T. And uh, they have motivated me to get an extra podcast out to you today. So thank you again, Magic Mutt, and thank you, Courtney and Carrie. I really appreciate you being such a an important part of the salon, and I'm sure that all of our fellow saloners send their thanks to you as well. So it was uh, quite a day on Tuesday. Normally, I wouldn't comment on a U.S. election because politics isn't the main focus for most of our fellow saloners, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But today I thought it might be interesting to continue to mine the vein that we began last week when there was also a little 1960s politics involved. As you know, uh, last week we heard a radio interview with Dr. Timothy Leary that was recorded in 1966. And that was uh, essentially at the beginning of what we now think of as the 60s. Now, uh, fast forward about 26 years from that interview and we get to 1992 which is the year that the trialogue we are about to listen to was recorded. And by an interesting coincidence, uh, it happens to also be the final tape in the 1992 trialogue series that I started playing a few months back. Technically, the title of this trialogue should be something like Utopian Thinking, Seeing Ourselves in History, because uh, that's how the discussion begins. But instead, I'm calling today's podcast Reality Check and partly in memory of a television program I produced back in Florida many years ago, but that's another story. The reason I want to ask you to consider taking a reality check at this particular moment in time is something that I'll get into after we first hear today's program. As I said, this is the final trialogue in a series that was held at Esalen Institute sometime in 1992. The participants were Ralph Abraham, Rupert Sheldrake, and Terence McKenna. And for those of you who aren't really big fans of Terence's thinking, well, there's an added little treat for you in that uh, Ralph and Rupert uh, really beat up on him in, uh, in this one as they point out a few inconsistencies in his thinking. Uh, it's really one of their more interesting exchanges, I think, but I'll let you decide that for yourself. So now here is Ralph Abraham sometime back in 1992 setting up the framework for this conversation. Sunday morning it's appropriate for something something special, something sacred. We have a short meeting and a long agenda. So <clears throat> I'll try to exercise discipline here. Our project this morning is either a major breakthrough for ourselves in understanding our place in history or um, brazen egomania. We want to try to see ourselves 
or rather our self as a trinity and our self, this group, this kind of activity. In the broader view of history, in the sweep of history, in in the line of some great idea or bad habit which has characterized the human spirit for a long time and to, to experiment with the idea of connecting with uh, such traditions as are perceived by cultural historians. There's two particular themes that I want to describe as uh, just two possibilities for understanding ourselves in the historical tradition. And uh, they are utopianism and millenarianism. So in a a nutshell, utopia is a word that uh, in our language has become pretty much synonymous with uh, nonsense. And we may not want to see ourselves in this tradition. But as understood by uh, cultural historians, utopianism is one of the major currents of the European mind and not an old one. According to the view of the specialists of the subject, uh, utopianism, although it has ancient roots, uh, for example, any kind of idealistic fantasy of the future, we would call that utopian. So we have the concept of the ideal city in the ancient world, most especially the ideal city of Plato's Republic. So casually we might call that utopian fantasy, although Plato did try to actually realize it in the political organization of a particular city. He ended up in jail for that effort. Another thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we choose whether or not to associate with this particular strand of uh, the human endeavor. But according to these historians of the the European mind, utopianism begins on a particular day, at a particular moment, and it's recent. It's less than 500 years old, and in that time, became a main theme, a chief characteristic theme of the European mind. And that day was the day of publication of a book called Utopia by Thomas More, M-O-R-E, in 1516. And uh, this word, Utopia, in the title is a translation into Latin of the Greek utopos, meaning nowhere. And this was its initial chief characteristic feature is that it was acknowledged to be nowhere. This was a dream not to be made real. Also, it was fiction. It had, you know, characters and plot and story and uh, kind of like uh, a soap opera uh, presenting in fictional form various themes of ideal achievement that the that our culture could strive for. After 1516, there was 
a tremendous rise in popularity. Well, this book sold real well and had a lot of imitators. So there was a huge genre, a body of fictional works, which uh, became the foundation of the utopian trend. But eventually branched into nonfiction as historians began writing literary criticism about this tendency. And after nonfiction began to be realized, materialized in actual communities that tried to live up to the utopian ideals of some or another novel or nonfiction work in this genre. For example, uh, thinking of recent books in this type, we could think of uh, Rian Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade, one of the most popular books in our group in the world today. This is um, a perfect example of the nonfiction utopian work. And I imagine uh, the specialists of this, well, I, I could name them. There is a, a couple, a husband and wife team of historians who made their life work the chronicling of this particular trend. And uh, they're called Frank and Francie Manuel. They worked 25 years and produced a book 900 pages long, and they plunked it down and said, we just cannot carry this burden anymore. We've hardly began, but somebody else has got to carry it. They plunked down this 900-page book in 1979. In 1979, looking back on the history of utopianism since 1516, they said, well, the last chapter in their book is entitled Twilight of Utopia. Twilight of Utopia. They saw the trend ended. 500 years, that was it. Probably under the influence of our common experience in the 1960s when the hippies of California, Paris and other places, Amsterdam, Provos, did try once again to materialize a new utopian ideal in actual practice. And this even strove for a planetary society based on ideal lines, which completely and totally failed. So at the, at the time of their writing, they saw the utopian literary current dried up and ended. Nevertheless, since, since then, since 1979 and the publication of the book, there are certain uh, surges of renewal in this literature. For example, Rian Eisler's book, published in 87 or 8, I think. Um, another nonfiction work of this type, we could look at uh, Rupert's book, The Rebirth of Nature, uh, a year ago. Uh, this year, Terence's book, Food of the Gods. I mean, this is just, I'm not saying we must see ourselves in this tradition, but I think certainly if the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Manuel wrote a revised edition of their book, they would definitely include these authors in their list. My unpublished book, uh, Chaos Gaia Eros, could be considered a kind of a Chaos Utopia, Rupert's book, Scientific uh, uh, Utopia, Terence's book, uh, um, Psychedelic Utopia, Rian Eisler's book, uh, Partnership Political Utopia. I mean, there's different sorts. 
And in this 900-page work, we have a catalog every author, thousands of works, thousands of communities that started and then were stopped. All are chronicled in temporal order in this work. And uh, Paul Tillich, uh, writing about this trend in 1951, made an interesting identification with the trinity of the prehistoric goddess, manifest in Christianity, let's say, as the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said that um, the, well, this particular Trinitarian utopian model was pre presented long before uh, Thomas More in 1516 in the works of Joachim de Fiore in the 12th century. So l let me just read a few words of Tillich's understanding of the Trinitarian structure of uh, the utopian genre, and uh, I think this will help us to see ourselves in history. The result is that <coughs> the overwhelming majority of these utopias show a triadic movement, the original actualization, namely actualization of the essence, and then a falling away from this original actualization, namely the present condition. And third, the restoration as an expectation that which has fallen away from its primordial condition is to be recovered. One of the distinguishing characteristics of this triadic movement is the consciousness on the part of those who use this symbolism, almost without exception, this is important, that the lowest point of the falling away has been reached in their time, in the moment in which they themselves live. It is always the last period that gives birth to utopia. Illustrative of this, and perhaps also the best formula that has been given for it, is Joachim de Fiore's idea that we live in the age of consummate sinfulness. Also illustrative is Augustine's idea that the world empires that uh, have come to an end with the last one, the great Roman Empire, which he as a Roman loved, and that their sole successor is to be the kingdom of God, which is in some measure actualized in the church, but whose final actualization will take place only after the close of history. The same idea is found in India, where it is always the last period in which the theologian who speaks of a succession of ages finds himself. In Greece, where the Stoics speak about the Iron Age, the last, <coughs> the most wicked. In Marxism, where the class struggle running through the whole of history is seen to have reached a point where revolutionary changes become inevitable because without it the human situation would move beyond all hope of redemption. In the biologic fascistic ideologies, where decline, decadence of Nietzsche, has reached its final stage, where a counter-movement must set in. <coughs> All of these instances show that the triadic progression is centered on the moment in which the reversal is immediately imminent. This is characteristic of all utopian thought. Now, another line, millenarianism. Uh, there are a lot of these, but uh, millenarianism has roots in... Uh, 
the Jewish idea of the Messiah, that there will be um, a coming of God on earth to uh, rescue humanity from a fatal impasse. Um, the, the version that this evolved into in the Christian tradition, the apocalypse that is uh, described in the New Testament, where there would be a third coming of Christ in a um, transformational period lasting a thousand years. So this was, I think, millionaire. It's not only the millennium as, for example, the year 1000 <coughs> or the year 2000, but also the idea of a special period somewhere of 1000 years that's uh, transitional to <coughs> uh, our final salvation. Salvation is an important aspect of the uh, millennial idea. But the <coughs> millennial tradition actually begins after the year 1000, when many people were disappointed that there wasn't, uh, well, there were a lot of activities. Terence has referred to this three-year period that centered on the year 999, is that right? Mm -hmm. So after that is the beginning of a new millennial hope and an extensive literature and an extensive actualization in, well, movements. You can call them movements. And these are characterized always by a prophet, the uh, propheti, the charismatic leader of a movement, a group of people, sometimes very extensive. So there is another magisterial historical work on this movement by Norman Cohn, uh, published in 1950 and revised after new discoveries in 1971. And in this book, an incredible catalog, prophet after prophet, movement after movement, the beginning, the middle, the end, the literature, the analysis, uh, the description of the similarities and so on, all these movements, including the the Quakers, the Shakers, I mean, there's so many, they are, this also, like the utopian movement, is an aspect of the European mind. It takes place within the context primarily of Christianity, and the, these millenarial groups are all heretical groups, departing from one or another dogmatic aspect of the organized church. So, uh, besides this uh, Christian heretical tendency, they tried to um, to organize communities which epitomized a certain ideal. Almost invariably, they included uh, sexual freedom as one of the, the similar tenets arising repeatedly in reaction to um, the idea of sin and sexual repression in the Christian tradition. In the revised work of Norman Cohn of 1971, there is an extensive appendix in which is translated virtually all of the extant literature of one particular group, which I think in the 17th century was, so coinciding with the rise of science in England, was very popular in England, and they are called the Ranters. This uh, group, uh, I, I think in, in particular, reading about it, brought up uh, certain similarities with 
our experience in the 1960s and and today, a movement in which the prophet obviously is Terence. Not Ice Cube. <clears throat> and this, uh, one of the chief and to me most mystifying aspects of the millenarian movement, as opposed to the, you know, the utopian, is triadic. We have, before that was good, which we, we, we have now, which is the deepest depression that will ever be seen in human history. And we have tomorrow, where the virtues of yesterday will be restored, together with new enhancements, like designer drugs or something, that will be even better. On the other hand, the millenarians uh, are dominated by the apocalyptic idea where human history will end at a certain, a certain moment with the eschaton, the eschatology of uh, Christianity culminating in some kind of fi final moment which is not found in other religions. And uh, I, certainly two of the most outstanding exponents, I, I think, of this tendency today are Terence and Jose Arguelles, who both agree not only on the, the eschaton, uh, along with Teilhard de Chardin, but also they agree on the date, the year 2012, based on, uh, in, in different ways, they, they came to this agreement. Between these two tendencies of the European mind in reaction to Christianity, the utopian and the millenarian, there is a certain overlap, and uh, there are important similarities and differences. Um, so somewhere in the neighborhood of this overlap, I think we could see our own trinity in our 10-year uh, history of doing what we're doing now. And uh, <clears throat> maybe if this isn't too egoistic to try to you know, consider ourselves in these historical uh, trends, at least we could say that these trends may have influenced us, uh, perhaps unconsciously, in coming to the positions that we've taken. And in case that's uh, so, we might want to consider the outcome of other people who were under the influence of these traditions uh, as they unconsciously responded to these deep runnels in the in the morphic field of our culture. So, a context for self-reflection. Hmm. Well, well, I think it's very illuminating, that uh, model. It makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, I think it clarifies a lot of things. I mean, I can see in myself both tendencies at work. The utopian tendency is something that's um, clearly expressed, for example, in socialism. I spent many years as a socialist. And um, believing that there was this primal state of um, humanity living in brotherhood, then alienation caused by serfdom, the feudal system, the rise of capitalism, the industrial state, and so imperialism, uh, following a Marxist analysis. And then uh, the state where, the, the condition where that is overthrown, and one returns to a more primitive, non-alienated state eventually of 
people living in communities, sharing their goods, and the state withering away. This is the Marxist utopian model with a millenarian aspect in it because the revolution is the millennial, the idea of the revolution ushering in a new age. Um, I myself was much influenced by that. I was also influenced by scientific utopianism, having been educated as a scientist. And the primary scientific utopia is, of course, Sir Francis Bacon's book, New Atlantis, published in 1624, in which he has this vision of an entirely new order in the world where there's a scientific priesthood that operate in this thing called Solomon's House, which is a, a college that rules this island kingdom. Someone's shipwrecked on an island. They find themselves in this kind of ideal state. And it's ideal... Um, everything's rationally ordered and there's this scientific priesthood who run the show live in a, a kind of college where they have organized research they have gardens where they have plant breeding they keep animals to study the animals and for vivisection experiments they have wave machines to create tanks of water with waves in so they can uh, study how to make, make dams and harbors properly by studying artificial tides and storms on a small scale through models um, they study animals and plants, they try to develop a universal language. Um, this was satirized by Jonathan Swift in the third book of Gulliver's Travels, The Voyage to Laputa, where there's this kind of mad academy with all these people with insane projects, um, um, like it making sunbeams out of cucumbers and uh, <laughs> making... Um, things out of spider's webs and make, making incredibly strong fibers out of spider's webs and a man there who's trying to develop a universal language which will overcome all divisions between human beings by having universal language, the kind of sign language. He goes around with this heavy knapsack on his back and when he wants to say anything he fumbles around and brings out various signs which he shows to people. But um, he ends up with such a heavy bag of stuff he can hardly move around with it. And, um, Anyway, there's a satire of this kind of scientific utopianism written by Jonathan Swift in the first half of the 18th century. That scientific utopianism got built into the ideal of progress, of technological and scientific progress, which was going to liberate mankind from the bondage of poverty, of disease, of enslavery to the elements of nature, from fear of storm, fear of cold, in fact, it's given rise to the ideology of the modern world. Our modern world is based on a kind of scientific utopianism, the whole ideology of development. Go through the world, here are these people living fairly contentedly as they always have done in rainforests, but they haven't got a cash economy. So to make a cash economy, make the economy grow, to get development in place so they can buy video recorders and that kind of thing, cut down the forests, mine the ground, um, and have the whole build roads, import trucks, have Coca-Cola on sale, all this kind of thing which is now the dominant ideology of the modern world is a, a, a transform of scientific utopianism. Then there's the liberal political utopianism that has the idea that the, the socialists and the, some of the liberals had the idea that you bring about this utopia not just through science and technology but through economic and political reform. So there are more just institutions, more truly democratic ways. It's through social change as well as scientific and technological that this utopia will arise. I believed all this for a long time and I think most of us do because it's so deeply ingrained in our culture.
Then there's another transform of this, the New Age movement, that there'll be uh, a kind of new uh, utopia brought about through discovery of ancient religious traditions, um, through um, finding out about what Oriental religions have done, um, through holistic approaches, harmonious ways of doing things, that a new age will dawn on earth um, when everything will once again be in harmony. This is another kind of utopianism which I've been strongly influenced by. And I think Ralph's right in saying that uh, my own book, The Rebirth of Nature, is an example of a utopian book. Uh, the essence of the argument that in the past people treated nature as alive, the earth and the heavens. There was a harmonious relationship because a recognition of the life and sacredness of nature gave a different way of relating to it than this alienated mechanistic way of treating nature as just a bunch of raw materials to exploit for profit. So um, a restoration of the sense of the life, uh, of nature, uh, life of nature could lead to a new society in which heaven and earth are mediated through human beings. Human beings would be the mediator of the marriage of heaven and earth to bring about a harmonious relationship uh, of the whole of nature on this earth and somehow bringing human society into a right relationship to the earth and the heavens. Well, that is indeed the vision uh, that lies under, behind my book, which Ralph rightly points out. And of course, some of Terence is mixed in his thinking. Half of Terence's thinking is utopian, the other half millenarian. The utopian side is the psychedelic revival, where there was this ancient society where people had a wonderful time harmoniously living on the earth uh, with tremendous vision of all these amazing realms somehow related to botany and their ecology. Um, psychedelic vision, collective orgies, dissolving ego boundaries. Um, then it all went wrong. The deserts dried, the, the earth dried up, the fungi retreated, the psychedelic visions became less and less frequent, became substituted by the, the, what was originally the medium for storing the mushroom, namely a honey solution fermented, turned into alcohol. And one then plumbed uh, the bottom the depths represented by modern society to be restored, uh, the original paradise to be restored by the mass cultivation of mushrooms, the smoking of DMT, and other psychedelic uh, revival um, <laughs> processes. Um, <laughs> thus would dawn the psychedelic utopia. Well, and Ralph, uh, of course, has another version of this, the mathematical utopia. Um, where the great regulative, eternal, if not eternal, at least objective mathematical structures, the mathematical landscape, the underlying principles which you unify the earth and the heavens, the fundamental principles reflected in all nature, heavenly and uh, terrestrial, um, become visible, not just to a few high priests of mathematics, but visible to potentially anybody um, through the medium of computer modeling. And thus, a kind of, uh, there's a kind of demo democratization of gnosis, that direct knowledge of fundamentals, which mathematics has had as its guiding light through the centuries and the millennia. And that this Gnostic um, seeing behind the scenes into the roots of the way things are becomes commonly available, no longer just through psychedelic visions, 
but through um, computer models which can be shared and entered into by many people. This is what we talked about uh, when, how long ago? It seems like weeks ago. It was actually about 36 hours ago, wasn't it? Um, when we were talking about computers and the psychedelics yesterday morning, 24 hours ago. And I think that what happened yesterday afternoon in our rather unsatisfactory discussion was that we, Terence, um, by the rules of that discussion, was denied his usual millenarian way out and was asked to consider what would happen if the millennium were postponed, if it didn't all happen in 2012. And this forced us out of the field of millenarianism into the field of utopianism. Uh, utopianism is to do not uh, millenarianism, especially uh, since millenarians usually have the end conveniently close, not too close, but close enough so that it could be in our lifetimes, not too close that it'll happen tomorrow or next year. Uh, 2012 is a perfect date from that point of view. 20 years away, um, it'll um, <coughs> it's, it'll see us out um, for quite a, quite a while. It's not too close. Um, so here's this perfect date. Um, and it really means that one doesn't have to think too much about what happens between then, uh, now and then, because part of the millenarian scenario, as in the book of the Apocalypse, as in the book of Daniel, which in this Jewish apocalyptic literature, of which the Christian apocalypse is a derivative, this is really a Jewish tradition, it's also present in Islam to some extent, um, the end of history um, involves appalling plagues, uh, it involves appalling diseases that sweep the earth, great earthquakes, eruptions, the seas turning to blood, a whole series of disasters, ecological, social uh, catastrophes, including plagues and diseases. And of course, it's only too easy to see all these things coming to, to bear on our society, an inevitable collapse and catastrophe. And this is always the precondition for the millennium. There has to be this sense of not just things, uh, utopianism may have touched bottom now, but millenarianism involves things getting even worse. Um, uh, <laughs> until the only way out is this total miraculous transformation, the coming of the Messiah, the descent of angelic powers, um, or in Terence's version, well he has many versions, um, many ways of imagining this end of history. Um, all of them resemble in some way a kind of collective DMT trip. And um, uh, this, or if you like, a near-death or a, a, a birth experience where one passes through an appalling time of disturbance and then there's an emergence into some totally new realm of being. So the apocalyptic tradition doesn't try to stop things getting worse necessarily. It regards it as inevitable, as part of a process being worked out. And I think that this is the conflict we all find ourselves in. Certainly, it's, we got uh, becalmed yesterday afternoon in this area between apocalypse uh, and millenarianism and utopianism. The utopian vision nowadays is not very strong. There are not many utopians around. The old utopianisms, the socialist one, is, there's hardly anyone who's into that anymore. The scientific and technological utopia who believes the world will be saved by more science and technology, just run by technocrats? The um, idea, the kind of United Nations social, uh, the uh, world government type of utopias, of which there have been many proposed this century, uh, embodied in the United Nations 
or the European common market uh, represents a kind of federalist ideal which still has some vigor and is still important and I mean I'm not knocking these I think they're very important but I don't meet many people who are wildly enthusiastic about the United Nations or even the European <coughs> common market as the sole solution to all our ills I mean they have a role to play um, so that isn't exactly something that commands incredible widespread popular enthusiasm um, so these utopian visions uh, that have guided so much of humanistic and socialistic thinking in the present century, secular humanism and socialism, have put their trust in this kind of rational reform, education, science and technology, world government, uh, rational discussion. The Rio summit was an attempt to bring that model of world agreement to bear on the ecological crisis. And according to the old-style utopian international federalist dreams, everyone would have agreed this is the best thing to do, gone back and all the countries would have hammered out a compromise, put it in place, and humanity, guided by science, would have rationally dealt with the environmental problem. As we know, that's not what happened. So, utopianism is still there, it's still important, it's still strong, and an element of my thinking is utopian, an element of Ralph's thinking is utopian, an element of Terence's thinking is utopian, and probably an element of all our thinking is utopian. But what became clear yesterday afternoon is that utopianism is not enough. We're in the field of millenarianism, whether we like it or not. We're approaching a millennium now. All these apocalyptic type uh, disasters are in place, the AIDS, the AIDS plague, the, um, the um, various, the toxic waste, the changing climate. And these kinds of scenarios, signs of the end, uh, are upon us, overpopulation. Um, and this puts us very much uh, in the field of this millenarian process. And that is, of course, part of the um, Christian view of history, which has become now spread throughout the whole world. Although it's many people are no, no longer Christian, this has created a kind of morphic field, a model of history, which has come to imbue our whole society. And, of course, Terence is one of its leading exponents. What I'd like to do now is ask Terence how he sees these two strands in his own thinking. On the one hand, the archaic revival, you see, is psychedelic utopianism. On the other hand, the time wave, the end in 2012, and a great deal of his thinking is millenarian. And since he represents both so eloquently, I'd like to know how you see them connecting or linking together. Yes, well, you're quite right about uh, analyzing both strains of thought in my thinking. Utopianism is, as you rightly say, somewhat in discredit. On the other hand, if you restrict yourself to the realm of the rational, then, all you, then you only have two choices, utopia or more history. And more history is beginning to look less and less likely. A hundred years ago, that would have been, well, no, probably these two things have been balanced in people's minds for a long time. Uh, at the beginning of Ulysses, Stefan Daedalus says, history is the nightmare from which I am trying to awaken. And I really feel that. I can't imagine 
a thousand more years of human history, more wars, more discoveries, more topless photos of Fergie, more and more and more, endless to no meaning. On the other hand, utopia, which the efforts to build it have become more and more fierce, and the efforts more and more horrifying. I mean, we've had in this century two serious efforts to build utopia. Let's make it three. The American, the Nazi, and the Soviet attempts to build utopias. All ended very, very badly, I think. The, the National Socialist Utopia ended in the Second World War and in an utter discrediting of fantasy fascism. And uh, the Soviet Union, we know that story. Our own story is in the act of unraveling at the moment, I think. And so where does that leave us then? It leaves us facing this most unlikely of all scenarios, which is the millenarian. And it's irrational. The other is rational, you know, out of human plans, dreams, and institutions, some more humane order might be fashioned. That's the hope of, of utopianism. And the conflict in my thinking is, I, I believe in the millennium but I think it's politically a um, disempowering idea. I see all these Christian fundamentalists running around. They also believe in the millennium. And they are uh, the major anti-progressive force in most advanced societies. So. How can we, what, how should we react to this dilemma? Well, in order to understand it, I think it's worth looking uh, uh, slightly afield for a moment. What we're really talking about here are origins and endpoints. And we've really been talking this morning about endpoints. But what about origins? The dominant and virtually unchallenged myth of our origin is either that God created us in seven days along with all the rest of creation, or that the universe was born out of nothingness in a single moment for no reason. These are the two choices on the menu, neither terribly compelling to rationalists, I dare say. Interesting to note that this scientific explanation, the universe sprang from nothing in a single instant, however we may think of it in terms of its veracity, notice that it's the limit case for credulity. <laughs> you understand what I mean? I, I mean that if you can believe that, hell, you can believe anything. <laughs> Sit down and try and think of something more improbable than that contention. So it's like they open up with the one-two punch and say, you know, put that in front of them. If they can swallow that, then 
then, you know, the hydrogen bond, gene segregation, yeah. and whatever, will follow hard apace, because the hard swallow comes first. <laughs> well, now, I... I um, <laughs> I maintain that it's a very odd place to look for what that's called is a singularity. And many theories require a singularity. It means in order to kickstart the intellectual engine, you have to go outside the system and you get one free hypothesis. <laughs> and then once you've used that up, your system has to run very, very smoothly, clear down to the end. So science uses up its one free hypothesis with the Big Bang, and it says, you know, give me the first 10 high 12, 10 to the minus high 12 nanoseconds, and if I can do smoke and mirrors in that, then the rest will proceed quite in an orderly fashion. If that, now that's orthodoxy, you got to understand. You know, that's what the straight people believe. So I think that. Uh, if you get one free singularity in your model building, a more likely place to put it would be not in a featureless, dimensionless, processless vacuum, super vacuum, it isn't even a vacuum, uh, at the beginning, but why not look toward a domain of many temperature regimes, many forms of energy, many languages, many chemical systems, many different levels of uh, energy exchange. In other words, why not look for the singularity late in the life of the universe instead of in the immediate moments of its birth? Uh, then what you have is a picture not of a process being pushed by causality toward some heat death billions of years in the future, but what you get is a picture of a universe that is flowing naturally toward a dwell point or a low point in the energy landscape that's at the end. That uh, organization transcends itself, produces more complex organization, which transcends itself, which produces more complex organization, and conceivably, out of a process of avalanching complexity like that, you might actually get a singularity of some sort. And uh, this singularity would have the character of an attractor. Now, I grant you that it's irrational, but our little discussion of the birth of the universe should convince you that it's all irrational. That isn't, that doesn't get you tossed out of the game. That's the name of the game. <laughs> so, being hopefully a sane person, my own inner dialogue uh, goes back and forth between the desire to preserve rationality and hence channel energy toward utopian hope, which is reasonable. After all, we have the money, the scientific knowledge, 
the uh, communication systems and so forth to solve any of our problems, feeding the hungry, curing disease, halting the destruction of the environment. The problem is our minds, that we cannot change our minds as quickly as we can redesign harbors, flatten mountains, cut rainforests, dam rivers. These things pose no problem. Changing our minds is very difficult. And because I see that, and because I see it from a psychedelic point of view, and because I don't want to abandon myself to despair, instead I see then this transcendental object at the end of time. This is not part of the utopian schema. This is part of the millenarian uh, revelation. But... uh, It's a very persistent idea in all times and all places. This highly unlikely concept has been kept alive. And I don't, I think that we are blinding ourselves to the intentionality present in our world. I think you have to have, be carrying a lot of unusual intellectual baggage to not see the last thousand years as a moving toward a maximizing of some kind of set of goals. I mean, it's not, you know, the triumphal march into God's kingdom envisioned by Christianity, but neither is it the trendless fluctuation that is taught in the academies. I mean, if you go to a university and ask them, what is history? they will tell you it is a trendlessly fluctuating process. What they mean is it isn't going anywhere. Well, now that's interesting. If it is a trendlessly fluctuating process, then it is the only such process ever observed anywhere. Processes are not trendless. They always are under the aegis of some set of uh, parameters which are being maximized. If a desert is drying out, then water vapor levels are dropping. That's what's being maximized, is dryness. To think of history, the very process in which mind is embedded and through which it expresses itself as trendless, is it's, uh, it's an existential... Sorry to interrupt. It's Lorenzo here just to let you know that I guess I didn't do too good of a job in digitizing this tape. Apparently it came to an end and cut off, but after I turned the tape over and resumed the process, uh, well, I I guess I screwed up somehow. (laughs) The somehow, of course, being the fact that we'd been up for several days and nights doing all of this digitizing and my brain must have become a little digitized in the process. Anyway, I apologize for cutting Terrence off in mid-sentence just now, and I apologize in advance for uh, it just now more or less jumping into the middle of a thought and uh, at a different recording level at that. I know there really isn't any good reason for this, but uh, had you been there, I'm sure you would understand completely. And now back to Terrence. Going back to Plato to say that if man, if God did not exist, human beings would create God. We are creating God. Uh, our cultural machinery, our dreams of integration, balance, 
care for each other, care for the world. These are godlike aspirations. I mean, we really aspire to be God. We talk about becoming the caretakers of the world. We don't want to be Adam and Eve chewing on the fruit in the garden. We want to be the gardener, as in the original scenario. Uh, I think that the power that we have in our uh, possession means we will realize these dreams. If not a real millennium, if not a real eschaton, then a virtual eschaton created with such care and finesse and attention to detail that it becomes an alternative reality of some sort. So I think, you know, people who say you set the scale too tight, if you were saying this would happen in a thousand years or five hundred years, it would just be interesting table talk. But by saying it's going to happen in 20 years, you present us with an impossible choice. But uh, the, the rates of closure, the speed of acceleration toward the omega point is exponentially accelerating. We cannot imagine uh, 2012 by looking backward 20 years and then saying we have that much more time to go through before we reach this moment. We have much more time because time is moving faster. We are compressing more events into it. And I think that, uh, you know, this guy um, Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book and he's what I would consider a secular humanist, a rationalist of some sort. And yet the theme of the book is that time is speeding up. And we all say this every time Russia shudders and a few more provinces are spun off into independence, then cocktail party habitués bore each other for weeks by telling each other, have you noticed the time is speeding up? Well, uh, I would like to take that seriously and say it is speeding up. Not human time, but the time of physics is accelerating. You know, we can imagine ourselves colliding with an asteroid or being battered by earthquakes or something like that. But what we can't conceive of is that we are on a collision course with a kind of hyperdimensional object of some sort. What people always object to the millenarian intuition with is they say, well, <laughs> you say a transcendental object is coming parallel or, or orthogonal to history. Don't you find it a little odd that it's going to occur in your lifetime? How convenient. Out of billions of years, it's going to occur in your lifetime. Out of billions of years, this event is going to precisely come tangential to 20th century history. That objection is not an objection at all. It's an argument in favor of my position. Because you see, um, history is the trumpet of judgment. 
uh, a million years ago there were only animals and plants and rivers and glaciers on this planet. Human history announces the coming of the eschaton. Human history, you know, when you open a door, first there's a crack of light that streams into the darkness. That's human history. We have cracked the door. It only lasts about 25,000 years. It creates an order in nature never before seen. The order in nature represented by a technology using, language using, loving, dreaming species. And then you push the door open and you see that, aha, uh -huh, history was the shock wave that preceded the eschaton. This is what these, this is pretty straight Christian dogma. This is what all these people have been saying, you know, is that there is a covenant between human beings and God Almighty and that the contract will be kept. The promise will be kept. I think it will be kept. And I think the challenge of science is to overcome the struggle with religion that characterized science's emergence and that now science must guide us into the presence of the eschaton using the tools and the descriptive uh, approaches that science has perfected. In other words, the proper attitude toward the eschaton is not prayer and sacrifice alone. The proper attitude is inquisitive understanding, curiosity, and delighted anticipation. It is an object in nature, like the electron, the spiral galaxy, and the human body. The end of history is a complex, a nexus, to use Whitehead's word, of temporal complexity that accounts for our existence. Without the eschaton, there would have been no human beings, no you, no me, no pyramids, no Stonehenge, no Catholic Church, no Hasidism. None of these things would exist. They are the precursive anticipations of the perfection that lies at the end of the morphogenetic process of self-expression that history is and that we are a part of in the sense that we represent the individual atoms that are flowing together to make the transcendental object at the end of time. Um, I, I will put myself out of business long before 2012 if other people don't start seeing things my way because part of the prophecy, if you will, is that awareness that this is happening will spread, not simply through those who take their uh, inspiration from Gideon, but among those who study particle physics, temporal uh, matrices, and general modeling of nature. Nature cannot be made sense of without this kind of a singularity. Science recognized that. They just put the singularity out of reach and safely in the past. But they can't explain organism, intelligence, or history. To do that, you have to take this mysterious moment of concrescent 
involutional totality and put it in the end state. It's a matter of simple logical necessity. The fact that it was achieved by psychedelically driven visionary shamanizing only shows how similar these two methods are in their conclusions. That's all. <laughs> well, I'm really a little disappointed, Terrence. Oh, my God, I can't take any more disappointment. <laughs> I, I fully expect to be meeting for another trilogue in 2012. I think it will be quite an important one. I'll be 76. I think that's not too old to get it on. <clears throat> get what on? <laughs> get this on. I never I wanted to think, be done 85 anyway. I think that uh, <clears throat> I challenge you, but I try to challenge you both to uh, leap to another level of discussion in the hermeneutical circle by considering ourselves in these traditions. Rupert responded by doing that, and I think that maybe when he uh, at the end challenged you with a question, perhaps you felt defensive, but I feel that rather than rewarding us with a consideration of yourself in the tradition, you instead just played another millenarian tape, agreed an excellent one, and it is an interesting idea, but it is not a consideration of this millennial obsession of yours in the context of a deep habit, a runnel in the morphic field of our civilization. If one did, then I think it looks more like this. We have habits. We have habits of thinking about time. We have philosophy of time, consideration of time according to certain models. The idea of time having a singularity at the beginning and singularity at the end is one model of time. And as Rupert has observed in the past, when you believe in the Big Bang, which you've correctly pointed out is extremely improbable, if you can believe this, you can believe anything, you then contradict yourself by suggesting that if you can believe that, well, you gullible ones believe this, that there's a singularity at the end. Uh, it, there's it, more evidence of the singularity to me at the that, end. That, that the situation is quite symmetrical, and, and either the singularity at the end, the eschaton poles that explains the origin of life, for example, such miracles that science uh, is uh, confounds science, or the singularity at the beginning creates, and what's, what's the difference? Then there's another model of time, the cyclical one, where we have the cycle of the four ages, which is repeated indefinitely, and not only the golden ages in the past, but the golden ages in the future, too, and the utopian uh, Trinitarian model is a version of that laid down by Joachim when he changed uh, the classical four epoch model into a three epoch model to agree with uh, the Christian trinity. Now, these two habits, which account for basically for the utopian and the millennial obsessions of the human species over this uh, historical period of 6,000 years, these were enabled by certain mathematical models of time coming into existence, into consciousness. Oh, we have a line, we understand a line, then we think of a linear model of time, then we a circle. Now we know circles, so our mathematical consciousness is growing. Well, recently we have new models for time. Even the greatest exponent of the fractal, the fractal model of time, uh, yourself, has, I think, contributed 
enormously to the history of the philosophy of time <laughs> by giving a new model. And chaos theory, likewise, has given many new models for transformation which <coughs> transcend the singularity concept. There are transformations in, that we observe in nature that now that our mental apparatus, our mathematical cognitive capabilities has evolved to a certain point where we can recognize many other forms of transformation as being canonical things that nature does. Rian Eisler has very cleverly, I think, adapted this new development in mathematical consciousness in her own utopian vision by proposing that social transformations such as the Renaissance, which is the ultimate new age dream, the Aquarian age, that when um, the pole star uh, moves into a new constellation uh, that will be enough because of the power of the heavenly realms to awaken a new level of consciousness in us. There would be, in other words, the, ex the New Age expectation is for a social transformation, a future um, history which is not boring. You said you're bored with life, the repetition, just another photograph of Fergie Fitz. I think actually the dream of a social transformation has historical support. You said what? History is the trumpet of the human experience. We, we have to compare our fantasy of what is going on with the historical record. The historical record does not support the eschaton. It just doesn't. That is a particular interpretation based on a very archaic, a very old, the oldest model of time in uh, the history of consciousness is the one that uh, you've implied to justify your millennial obsession. Explain why it doesn't support the eschaton? I don't understand. It doesn't support the eschaton in distinction to the other models. History is is well, actually written according to a conceptual model. At the beginning of what you were saying, you said that the two possibilities, the uh, singularity at the beginning and at the end of the process of universal becoming, seemed co-equal, but to me, equally why, improbable, yeah, equally improbable. Out. no, I didn't say that. I said I think it's much more probable to find it at the end of a process when you have great complexity than to believe it would spring from a state of utter nothingness. Why isn't the historical record compatible with the idea of uh, our, our, in our immediate future is an upcoming amazing, difficult, and creative social transformation, such as the Renaissance. That means we have a future which is not boring. It may be boring until we get in the vicinity of a transformation. The transformation will be a chaotic transient from one attractor to another, a period of destabilization when all uh, constraint of history is lifted, novelty is empowered, to actually do something instead of being constantly frustrated and then we wake up one morning and read in the paper that the the sun is rising in a different way. This has happened in the past. It's in the historical record of the people who wrote the history by whatever their model, whether it's the cyclic model for history or the linear progressive model for history or whatever. Here's a new model. It goes along boringly the same for a while. Eventually there's a destabilization. You have a rapid change to a new equilibrium and among these different equilibria, there is perhaps a kind of progression in the long run. In that model, 
these catastrophic transformations are announced by plagues, by, by the crash of Russia, the dissolution of the established structures, out of which uh, Phoenix from the Ashes comes a new organization which might be glorious. Now, in this transformational model of history, we have the longest view written in a book is Jim Lovelock's uh, history of the Earth called The Ages of Gaia. And in the Ages of Gaia, he uh, uh, describes the whole history of life on the planet as a series of equilibria punctuated by these catastrophic transformations. And he says, in the history of the planet, there are eight of them, the really major transformations. The last one is uh, 65 million BP. Um, well, so in that view, even the human species could disappear, and life may be boring for microbes, but they must go on. The biosphere is not over. Life is not. Maybe the eschaton is there for the human species. Well, I don't know. I'm feeling like a slightly mauled in all this, because as you know, I'm the purveyor of a mathematically precise theory, which, as you know, cannot be laid out in the time remaining before this group. So I'm being thrashed because it's known that I will not bring up the big guns. And so, uh, and, and so I have to sit and listen to this. Uh, you know, the reason I don't buy the idea that, that, that this is simply one more renaissance or one more gothic revival is because these processes have occurred faster and faster, these breakthroughs to novelty. So it's just not that they happen, it's that they happen faster and faster, and whatever James Lovelock's affinity for something happening 65 million years ago, a few things of high interest have happened since, like everything having to do with the human world. And when you look at human history and technology and the spread of peoples and genes and so forth and so on, it's clear that we have reached some kind of limit. Maybe you get one more renaissance before you slam into the wall, but not a dozen, not a hundred. This is not the renaissance. This is not the rise of Rome. This is the final global uh, uh, crisis, yes, and the objective data supports that. I know, but it's so provincial, Terence. I mean, this, um, this, there's a sense in which this millenarian vision is a product of a historical model that grew up within one branch of human consciousness, the Judeo-Christian-Islamic branch. There's a sense in which you could argue that all this is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Having unleashed these millenarian visions, our history has been driven by millenarian visions, which has actually empowered and directed the discovery of America, the opening up of the new world, the development of the atom bomb, the, uh, the rise of science and technology. Most of the things that are actually creating the crisis are man-made. And therefore, there's a sense in which this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And even if we collide into this wall of history here on Earth, 
I find it quite incredible that the rest of the solar system is just going to shut up shop and go out of business, let alone the galaxy, let alone the clusters of galaxies. And here's a man galaxy. who thinks the sun is alive. <laughs> oh, <all right. laughs> the, the sun could undergo a tremendous transformation. Let's, I'll, I'll concede the entire solar system to you. <laughs> but that leaves an awful lot else. The rest of the galaxy. Is I'll that take it. I'll never <laughs> for the solar system. The galaxy can take care of itself. Well, no, it can't, you see, because we now move. This is what I mean about provincial thinking. First of all, um, it's limited to a tiny fraction of the cosmos. And I see the same problem with Tyre de Chardin. Is the Omega point just about human destiny on Earth, or just the destiny of the Earth, or even the solar system? Or is it about the entire cosmos, countless trillions of galaxies, um, you know, stars everywhere, incredible. I can't believe that the extinction of human life on Earth, the kind of transformation you're talking about, the the, even the implosion of the entire solar system is going to set up more than the most minute ripples throughout our, even our galaxy. Well, but implicit in that objection is that you really think those galaxies are there. You really believe that there are light, millions of light years of space and time filled with spiral galaxies. That could all be scrim. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the true size of the cosmic stage is a hotly debated subject even among the experts. All right, but uh, and, and when you say it's too local, then you attack it if one takes the other position and say, but then how can you possibly believe that it's universal? Well, you only have two choices, either what you disdainfully call provincialism or what you disdainfully call universalism. It's got to be one or the other. I am uncomfortable with the universal thing myself. However, I also am uncomfortable with the idea that the universe as described by Newtonian astronomers should just be absolutely unchallenged. Uh, this anthropocentric principle that they've begun to allow into their mm -hmm. deliberations uh, suggests that, you know, maybe the stars aren't as fixed in their courses as we imagine, and that uh, somehow events on the Earth could have a kind of cosmic significance. I mean, I'm just well, speculating I'm not well wedded to this. Well, let me... First, I'll deal with my other objection to millenarianism, as proposed by you. We have uh, ten, ten minutes Yeah, we have to get right. Okay, very quickly. The, the true millenarian vision and the apocalyptic tradition is more like what Ralph says. It's a, a period... It's not a total... You know, everything suddenly disappears in a blinding light. It's a period of transformation followed by a millennium, a period of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Right. Now that, I think, is something that's lacking from your vision. At least you don't think beyond this 2012. No, I, mean, I would. I'm interested not in the term eschatonic or something like that. Yours is much more absolute. Yes, right. Now I'm more inclined to traditional millenarianism, like Ralph is, a transitional period followed by some kind of kingdom of heaven on earth. And what I think the kingdom of heaven on earth could involve is, first of all, psychedelics, secondly, the revival of animism, thirdly, mathematical objects visible to all through computers, and fourthly, communication with the stars. 
so that through conscious communication a network of consciousness begins to link up far beyond the earth to other stars, other galaxies along the lines we were discussing last night a thousand years to effect this linking up of consciousness throughout the entire cosmos at the end of which the true and absolute eschaton might be possible right now it would be confined to earth or at least the solar system well the only difference you <coughs> and I have on this is I think that this thousand years will probably should be scaled back by two ma orders of magnitude. It's ten years. It's from 2002 to 2012, and you will have your psychedelic legality, your cured AIDS, your orgies, your food for everyone. Uh, the millennium will dawn, I think, sometime around 2002 or three or something like that. But it doesn't last a thousand years. That was a naivete by virtue of the prophecy being made in a different era of the compression of time. It will then build quite naturally toward the revelation of the eschaton sometime around 2012. What do you think? <laughs> about that or anything else I mean this is well we have uh, had planned to uh, our, our aborted plan included a space for a response to the weekend from everyone and now um, we need a new plan so let's consider this together we can um, quit now making extra space for final hugs, which I think are very appro appropriate in case mm. Terence is right. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Save some time for final hugs. Now I like that thought. Uh, there should always be a place for final hugs. Even if Terence is wrong, which uh, I believe he was. I know, I know, you Daniel Pinchbeck fans and die-hard 2012ers are still expecting a singularity four years from now. And uh, maybe we'll experience it yet. But for sure, Terence's idea of a 10-year reign of peace from 2002 to 2012 seems uh, pretty far off the mark to me. Uh, even with the rather remarkable election in the States just now. But I do believe that there has been uh, a slight cosmic shift in this corner of the planet. And so I thought it might be worthwhile for us all to get our feet back on the ground before we let a much-needed transformation turn into dreams of a utopia that simply isn't going to arrive. In other words, it's time for a reality check. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I do get it. I really understand the magnitude of what happened in the U.S. elections two days ago. I remember segregation. I saw it in practice, and so I really do know what an absolutely impossible thing just happened. That it happened during my lifetime, I, I find almost beyond belief, because I know how much racism still exists in this land. It remains very broad and very deep yet today. But I now see a possibility for us to, to change, uh, even if ever so slightly, because we didn't just elect a president yesterday, we elected a first family. And from what I've seen so far, this is going to be the finest first family this nation has ever had. 
Now, I know that I've promised to keep politics out of the salon, and after today I'll get back to that policy. But I've got a couple more things I want to say while I circle back to today's topic, which is reality check time. Last spring was the only other recent time in which I mentioned politics. And at the time, I was very passionate about seeing Obama defeat Clinton. And so I said something to the effect that even if I had to write in Obama's name, that I would still be voting for him in November. Those words uh, came back to haunt me this past July when he reversed himself on the FISA bill. I won't go into all that right now, but for me it was treason. He had betrayed me. And by the way, I still feel that way. And so, uh, when he did that, uh, I began telling my friends, relatives, and neighbors that I was going to vote for either the Green or Libertarian candidate instead of Obama, knowing full well that uh, here in California my vote for Obama wasn't needed. Well, needless to say, uh, many of them <laughs> actually quit talking to me. But in the back of my mind, I remembered what I said here in the salon, and so I knew that if I wasn't going to vote for him, I had to at least say something here in the salon before the election. Yet I, I didn't feel that I should be telling anyone how to vote, uh, but ultimately I, I knew that this was such a historic occasion that I'd kick myself for not being a part of it, and so I did give him my vote. Now bear with me for just a moment more. I guess you could say that I'm not his biggest supporter, and that is why I was so surprised at my own reaction on Tuesday night as my wife and I watched Barack Obama give his speech in Grant Park. I still remember Grant Park as the scene of the police riot during the 1968 Democratic Convention when hundreds of students were attacked by the Chicago police. Yet there was Barack Obama at the scene of the crime of one of the lowest points in American history. And that old park was transformed into a scene of one of the greatest triumphs in American history. As I watched and listened to Barack Obama give his speech that night, I'm not ashamed to admit I sat there and wept like a baby. I truly didn't think I would live to experience that moment. While I was an undergraduate at college, I watched John Kennedy give his inaugural address. That was a thrilling moment for me back then, a callow youth of 19. But I'm here to tell you that it was nothing, nothing in comparison to how I felt on election night. And remember, I'm one of Obama's critics. Yet the symbolism of that moment moved me to tears. It was one of the most precious moments in my life. That's how moved I was by these events. And if you're a person of color or other minority, well, I can't even imagine how exhilarated you must have felt. What a moment. What a wonderful moment. But, as we all know, moments pass us by, and uh, very fleetingly at that. So we've had our celebrations. Now let's see where we are. Well, to begin with, it does actually look as if there will be once again an orderly exchange of power in the U.S. Capitol next January. And the new guy is uh, so great an improvement over the current occupant of the White House that there aren't even uh, words for it. Uh, that's the positive side. The other side of the pancake isn't quite so appetizing, I'm afraid. For starters, uh, Obama now supports the new FISA law, which essentially establishes a secret police system in this country. Search warrants are no longer required. You know, it's a true constitutional abomination, and we're stuck with it for a long time now. Then there's the number two guy, the new number two guy. Granted, uh, he's not an insane evil maniac like the current VP, 
But Biden's a jerk who came up with mandatory minimum sentences and uh, is also the guy who came up with the concept of a drug czar. On top of that, uh, the last time I heard, he was still uh, against P2P file sharing as well. So the faces have changed, but uh, from where I stand, I don't see any significant changes in this uh, nutty war on drugs, which is part of the culture wars, of course. And on the culture front, uh, Tuesday was not a very good day. For example, here in California, where gay marriage is already a constitutional right, a bill may have passed that uh, removes this right from the state constitution. Now, the vote is close and still being counted, plus there are already court challenges to this proposition. But how could this happen, you ask? Isn't California the most progressive part of the country? Yes, it is. But as is true elsewhere, a significant part of the population gets all of their election information from TV ads. In the case of the anti-gay proposition, our television stations were clogged from morning to night with advertising in support of this anti-human proposition. And where did those tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars in advertising fees come from? Well, it seems that this polygamous cult from Utah has its members all over the world collecting money from the poor. From poor, uneducated people who think that their donations might just buy them a ticket to heaven. And then, these alms from the poor have been used to trick the California poor into voting against gay rights. You you can't make this stuff up, you know, but... Doesn't it seem strange to have a polygamous cult lecturing the good people of California about marriage etiquette? And I don't want to pull any punches here. The anti-gay proposal was overwhelmingly supported by the black and Latino communities in the L.A. area. So I say to all of those bigots who voted against gay rights, shame on you. How can you vote for a black man in the interest of ending oppression of your race and then turn around and oppress another group? We have obviously a very long way to go if we're going to move our culture in a more human direction. And then there was Proposition 5 here in California, which had to do with providing better treatment instead of prison for nonviolent drug offenders. Actually, I prefer to think of people arrested for violations of drug laws as resistors, members of the resistance, not criminal offenders. But that isn't the way the ignorant masses see it. Here's uh, what Rob Campia of the Marijuana Policy Project had to say about Proposition 5. We knew from early polling that a substantial majority of Californians favored this major reform of the state's prisons and drug sentencing policies. But a sordid coalition of the prison guards union, the beer distributors association, gambling interests, fanatical anti-drug groups, and craven politicians raised $3.5 million in the last few weeks of the campaign and ran deceitful TV ads across the state. Ultimately, we could not compete with their lies and scare tactics. And so, the state of California will now continue to close schools and libraries in order to use that money to expand their prison system. Now, if that doesn't kill your Election Day buzz, I don't know what will. And just to go back to the Mormon ad blitz against gays and lesbians for a moment, they reportedly spent somewhere around $70 million in their attack ads. So much for uh, separation of church and state. And I realize that I'm stepping on some of our fellow Slaughter's toes here because I know that there are a lot of our friends in Utah who listen to these podcasts. But it's time for some tough love, I'm afraid. 
I've actually read the Book of Mormon, and to be honest, if you or I came up with a cockeyed story like that, we'd be laughed out of town. Get a grip, and, and this goes for my friends who are Christians and Muslims, too. Just sit down and read those books that you think were written by a god, and read them objectively. Then do some research and dig into the backgrounds of the people who actually wrote these supposedly sacred books. And if you have to, ingest one of our sacred medicines and see what you think about those wild tales once you've broken the chains that were wrapped around your mind when you were a child. Think for yourself. Question authority. All authority, particularly religious authorities. Religion is a con game, and the sooner you figure that out on your own, the better off you're going to be. But I'm getting way off track here. <laughs> My point is that we still have miles to go before we sleep. A great victory was won on Tuesday. A victory for all the people, even the Republicans, even though it'll take them a few years to come to that conclusion. But now is not the time to sit back and rest. Don't think that life on the ground is going to change for any of us anytime soon, other than to get even more difficult for a bit, that is. We're still in for some tough times ahead, but this cynical old Vietnam vet is more optimistic and hopeful about the future of life on this planet than I've ever been before at any time in my entire life. So let's press on. And I'd better press on with this podcast right now. First of all, uh, Rupert mentioned a trilogue that they'd held 36 hours before and was about computers and psychedelics. In case you're joining us for the first time today, I should point out uh, that you can hear that trilogue in our podcast number 126, which I titled Psychedelics and the Computer Revolution. Next, I want to mention that it was Symbiont uh, on the Psychedelic Salon forum over at thegrillreport.com who was the one that posted the information about the psychedelic conference in Australia that I mentioned last week. After finishing the recording of last week's podcast, I realized that I didn't give him or her credit for the information. So uh, thanks again, Symbiont, and uh, thanks for also for participating in our forums. And finally, I want to mention our friends over at Arrowid. I'm sure that you've been to arrowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org, but in case you haven't uh, heard, uh, it is without a doubt, hands down, the very best source of drug information on the Internet. And I know that Anne and Sasha Shulgin, uh, among many others, agree with me on that. I know most of the people involved in that project, and in my opinion, they are all impeccable. And I never say that lightly. Anyway, uh, the new edition of Arrowwood Extracts is now at the printer. And if you aren't already an Arrowwood supporter, uh, now is the perfect time to become one and get a copy of their latest printed journal. Here are uh, some of the things that you're going to find in it. Results of a 2CB fly survey, an article on a novel smoking cessation therapy that uh, uses scopolamine and atropine, a report about the Boom Festival, a look at uh, on-site pill and substance testing, Information about Changa, which is a DMT and MAOI-containing smoking blend, and uh, and more. Now, Arrowhead uh, was having a membership drive in October, but I'm sure that they would more than welcome you if you stopped by right now. They're uh, really a wonderful group of people doing some very important work. My wife and I have uh, been members for a long time now, and we hope that you're also a part of this important project as well. Well, that's about it for today, uh, but as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. 
And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.